Well, how we doing? We're doing quiet, okay. Well, that's good because you don't need to talk while I'm talking anyway. No, I'm kidding. Um, my name is Nathan. Uh, I'm one of the teachers here at the church. It's good to see you guys this morning. Uh, as you just heard Kaylee read, we're going to be uh, in Acts chapter 1. But as has been the case, as this is week 3 of our series, Firm Foundation, we're going to be all over the map. But we're going to find ourselves predominantly at, at most of the most of the sermon are going to be in Acts chapter 1, uh, 6 through 11. As I said, it's week three of our series, Firm Foundation, and um, we've been talking about what it means, New Year, to kind of build a foundation for our lives that, that will kind of basically help us to be ready for whatever this year brings, whatever our goals might be. And so this is week three. Uh, in 2019, my wife and I, we built a house. And now when I say we built a house, don't think like Chip and Joanna Gaines, we built a house. Uh, it was more like my wife met with the architect and designed it. My wife met with the contractors. My wife decided like how many stairs to have and how, how tall they should be and where the windows should be and how big the room should be. And, and she met like, what color should the paint be? And what kind of bricks should we have? And, and I uh, paid the bills. I paid the bills. So it's definitely not Chip and Joanna. It wasn't, it's more like Jenny and the check writer at best is really what, what our, we should do a Netflix show, Jenny and the check writer. But we built this house. And, and I remember, um, you know, the first thing, if you don't know this, I wouldn't build a house if I were you, because the first thing you do is you build a foundation, right? You, you bring in dirt, level it out if that's needed. You, you dig some footing. Some of you are contractors, like you're missing some steps. I probably am. Um, but, but the brass tacks is you start with the foundation. And I remember when they poured the foundation of our house and I, I remember we, we pulled up and it was, it was dry enough for us to walk on it. And, and so we, we stand up on the foundation and, you know, and it's just a big concrete slab. And Jenny Beth's like, well, this is where the bathroom's gonna be. And, and over here is where Brooks's room and Reese's room are. And this is gonna be your office. And I remember standing on the foundation and being like, this thing looks small. Have y'all ever stood on a foundation and thought like, how could this actually support, like we were moving out of a 1200 square foot house or 1300 square foot house into what was gonna be at least on the bottom floor around 2000 square feet. And it just felt like it was, it was small. It feels like the foundation could not really meet the scale, so to speak, of what it needs to. And so as I was telling her that, I was like, this doesn't feel very big. She's like, well, it gets bigger as you build. And because I was born in the eighties, my response was like, duh. Right? Like I know it gets bigger as you build, but what she meant by that was when you start to add walls on the outside and you add brick and then you add interior walls and you put in windows and you vault certain ceilings that all of a sudden this foundation that you could like throw a ball across becomes a big house. And what I find interesting is that that's necessary because what we look at, one of the things interesting about foundations when you're building is that the foundation doesn't take that long. Not really. I mean, I think it took us like 12 months or 14 months to build our house, thanks to rain. Um, and, and the foundation part was like, I don't know, a couple weeks. And the rest of the time is really built on what you see, the aesthetics, the, the, the finishings, the, the paint, the cabinets, and all, and all of that. But it's the foundation that's underneath all of that that's fundamental. A proper foundation is the only way to build something that will house a lifetime of good memories and yet also withstand the storms of life. 
And so as I look at this, as I think about firm foundations for us in 2023, I think about the fact that the foundation of the house is ultimately what makes the difference of whether it stands the test of time. And the design, the layout of the house determines the actual experience of how it would actually be to live in the house. And I think today, as we look at this third part of our series, Firm Foundation, and we kind of look at this third layer, so to speak, of our foundation, and we think about how our house that we build on our foundation, how we build our life, how we lay it out, I think we're gonna basically see today what that would look like, to kind of finish the foundation, start to look at the layout of the year. And so today's message is new year, same story. First week, new year, same God. Second week, new year, same gospel. And now new year, same story. And to look at the story of scripture, we're gonna look across scripture. And as we do, I want us to really hone in on three things. I want us to see where our place is in the story of God. Where's our place in the story of God? And then I want us to see the power and the presence in our place or the presence and the power in our place. And then the last thing I wanna talk about is just relishing in the better story, relishing in the better story. So our place, the presence and the power in our place and relishing in the better story. So first, just let's talk a little bit about what it means for us to have our place in the story. I remember several years ago, um, as I was kind of recommit, like re-getting serious about my faith in my early 20s, um, after kind of running from God in college, uh, somebody kind of had talked to me about, you know, the Bible is one big story. And I remember thinking like, well, I'd never really thought about it like that. Um, and he, he kind of walked me through, you know, if you were to look at it like a 30,000 foot view, there's really four main chapters, so to speak, four stages of the story of God. And it starts with creation. Chapter one, so to speak, would be creation. And that's probably pretty obvious. I think a lot of us, we start with the story of God, maybe with sin, but the Bible starts with creation. That even the Trinity is existent in the beginning. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the spirit hovered over the, the face of the deep. And you have the word that God spoke things into existence that we find out in John, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the Trinity begins to create onto this canvas what we see and know. And then he creates what we see and know in the heavens and the earth. And he fills those things. He fills the water with, with animals and he fills the sky with stars and with birds. And he fills the earth with animals and creeping things. And the last thing he does in verse 26 of chapter one, God says this, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is commonly known as, there's really kind of two things in this. There's, number one is there's the Imago Dei. That's Latin for the image of God. That fundamentally mankind, male and female, were created in the image 
of God. Now, that doesn't mean God looks like us, obviously. God is spirit, as Jesus says. And yet, we find out that, that what separates us from all other creatures is that we're made in the image of God. And the second thing that we see is that then there's a creation, what's called the creation mandate which is that God in making us in his image now gives us a mandate. There's a directive to his image bearers that is not given to any other part of his creation. We are to be having dominion. We are basically to reflect his glory and his goodness to the earth. Being his image bearers then gives us an overarching value and overarching purpose to humanity. And being his image bearers and having dominion means we display the glory of God across all the earth as we fill the earth and multiply and subdue it. We are to reflect his glory and his goodness. And that means that creatures in some ways, I think even look at humanity in a certain way. Like it matters how I treat my dog, even when her incessant barking drives me nuts. It matters because in the eyes of creation, we are image bearers of God. We are made to reflect the glory of God and God being good and for our right joy and pleasure, yet also being sovereign and wise, he gives a directive specifically or a prohibition maybe is a better word to his image bearing humans. Here's what he says in chapter two. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So just so side note, work is not part of the fall. Work being hard is part of the fall. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is creation. God sovereignly creates on this blank canvas what he desires to create and then he sticks human beings in the middle of it as his image bears to have dominion, to display his goodness, to display his glory. And he says, basically like, you just gotta trust me though. And our first parents, Adam and Eve, and quite frankly, all of the rest of us since then have chosen a different way. The serpent comes into the garden, entices Adam and Eve to eat of the tree and weaves a lie in their minds that sets deeper into their hearts that God is actually robbing from them by not letting them eat of the tree, that he's not good, he's not for their satisfaction, he's actually holding out on them and they believe the lie and every one of us believe it too that God in, in some way is holding out on us, that, that really there's, there's joy to be had if we just kind of cross the boundaries that he has set. So they believe the lie, they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is known as the fall of humanity. This is chapter two in the story. And humans are still image bearers, but now we have conflicting desires as we, we wanna gratify the desires of our flesh that are now out of step with the way we were designed and created to be. And the fall of humanity and our choosing to live our own way, it doesn't erase the fact that we are image bearers and that God's image is in us and it doesn't erase our dignity. But it does, however, separate us, creating a chasm between us and God. God in his holiness and his beauty and perfection 
and us in our rebellious and now dying state. And we see in Genesis 3, after the fall, God in his holiness and to be clear, in his goodness, banishes them from the garden. His presence now at best is shrouded, yet he displays his grace to Adam and Eve and that he covers their nakedness because they could not do that themselves. And he keeps them, this is his goodness, he keeps them from being in the garden and eating of the tree of life so that they will never, so they will not be forever in this state. It's chapter two, the fall, but then you get the fall, after the fall of humanity, despite the fact that sin does separate us from God's good presence, God still and his goodness stays at work in the world. As God pronounces judgment and consequence on the serpent, on Adam and on Eve, his pronouncement to the serpent is probably the most telling because in Genesis chapter three, here's what he says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And while there may be consistent enmity between the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of Eve, which is humanity, one of her offspring will end up being struck by the serpent in the heel, so to speak, but that individual will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. From the third chapter of scripture, most commentators believe that God is already prophesying of the coming gospel, the coming person who would intervene on behalf of his creatures that he longs to be with. So we find ourselves in just chapter three of the Bible in chapter three of a four chapter story. It's a long chapter. And the chapter is redemption because God begins to work through different individuals in Genesis until he makes a promise to Abraham to make a people of his own possession. And this plays itself out over many years through the immediate descendants of Abraham, Isaac, his son, then Jacob, Isaac's son, who's later renamed Israel, and then his 12 children are named the 12 tribes of Israel. And the family grows in Egypt as they enter Egypt due to famine. That's the story of Joseph and the end of Genesis. And the end of Genesis, they're in Egypt for about 400 years. You get to Exodus and God, now this family has become a nation after 400 or so years. And now they're under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh. And through the Exodus, God moves them out of the oppression and heavy hand of Pharaoh. And he begins to give them his law and he begins to make them a people. And he establishes himself as their God. And the goal for Israel was the same goal for the entire human race from Genesis 1, to be image bearers who display what it means to be submitting to and displaying the glory and goodness of God. They were to be a light to the nations. You see the story, the way redemption was working. And this is how Habakkuk, I know you probably read Habakkuk already today, but if you haven't, Habakkuk 2.14, this is what he says, this is what Habakkuk says about the overarching story for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now where we live, a lot of us venture to the ocean. Some of us get to go more than others, but I'm not mad about it. And so if you can just close your eyes for a second and picture standing on the shore. and looking out and as far as your eyes can see is water. 
Now underneath that, there's sand and then there's probably some drop-offs. Eventually there's places that are very deep. There's fish. But what you see for miles and miles and miles and miles, water. And God gives us this image that my glory will fill the earth the way the waters cover that sea. All you see is water. All you see, wherever you look, the glory of God filling the earth. This is the story. This is what God has called them to. But Israel, she had her ups and downs. They try and they follow God only to fall back into idolatry and to look really much like the world around them on a lot of ways. But God knew this would be the case. He engaged with Israel over the centuries and then at the right time, Galatians 4 says, this is what he did. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So he's, he's divine, he's God's son, yet he's, he's human, he's born under a woman and he's not just human, he's a Jew. He's born under the law. Verse five, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Jesus comes to fully reenact or enact this this plan of redemption. He has come to redeem those who are under the law so that we can no longer be estranged, but now can be brought in and become the family of God, sons and daughters, crying, Abba, Father. Jesus comes and does more than merely bruise Satan. He crushes the power of Satan, sin and death through his own death on our behalf on the cross and the resurrection. This is what we talked about last week. It's what Judd talked about this morning. It's what we sang about every week, the gospel. And now Jesus has inaugurated the the kingdom of heaven on earth through himself and through his people. The chapter of redemption is a long chapter, but it's not the last chapter. Because one day Jesus will fully and finally consummate the new creation that he began at his resurrection and begins when people profess faith in him. Second Corinthians five says that human beings, when they put their faith in Christ, they become new creations, new creations, right in the midst of an old and dying creation. We are, there's an overlap right now between the new creation and the old and dying creation, but that one day, Jesus will come and fully consummate what he began in his own resurrection, a new heaven, a new earth, no sin, no death, no pain, no sorrow. Chapter four, consummation. And so this is the overarching story, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Where are we at in the story then? Well, I know, there was a lot of, I know there was a lot of info. Some of that might be new to you. Some of it, probably not. But here's where we are. We're in Acts chapter one. Well, we aren't in Acts chapter one, but Acts chapter one, verse six through 11 tells us kind of where we're at. Starting verse six. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? You see, is, the, the consummation of, of new heavens and new earth is not left to revelation. This was Old Testament 
too. All throughout the Old Testament, you see promises of this consummation interwoven, like the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Like just things that you're like, how does that work without one eating the other? Because there's gonna be a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth. So they're coming to Jesus. They're like, you're resurrected. It just seems like now would be the time, right? That, that chapter four would come, that, that consummation would come, that you would restore the kingdom to Israel is now the time. And Jesus' response to them is, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. That's Jesus saying, not yet. And just like the father at the right time sent Christ to die for the ungodly, the Father will at his right time send Christ to come and fully and finally restore all things. But now is not the time and it's not for us to even know the time. Instead, what does he say in verse eight? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You see the consummation, the, the Jesus that rose bodily rose, bodily ascended. He's now at the right hand, has a resurrected body and he's at the right hand of the father and that he will return. And when he returns, we will have consummation of all that he's done. But where are we in the story? We're in the middle. We're, we're towards probably the end of chapter three, but, but still in chapter three, the story of redemption awaiting consummation. This is our place in the story, an overlap of between old creation that is dying and new creation that has begun. And in this overlap, in this place, in this time, in history, in God's story, Jesus gives us a directive and he gives it to us in Matthew 28. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is basically Matthew's account of the last words of Christ. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them, again, we see Trinitarian. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just like the Trinity was there at the beginning of creation, the Trinity is present in the working of new creation in the lives of people. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he gave us a mission to go and make disciples, not converts, to make disciples, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you to make followers of Jesus. This is the mission. Now, I know, like I said a minute ago, like for a lot of you, like knowing where we are in the story helps to make sense of the foundation that the story gives our lives. But a lot of you may be like, I already knew all that. Like you could have saved some time I knew those, those chapters and that's great. But here's what I wanna, here's what I wanna whether, no matter where you are, if you're like, that was new to me or I've always known that, here's what I just wanna posit to you as an application. If we don't understand those chapters, first of all, when you read your scripture, when you read your Bible, 
it really helps to know where you're at in the story. Otherwise, you might be like, dang, God's cranky when he's just trying to work out redemption with Israel. If you're not really sure, like, why Jesus says some things he says, because you're not really sure, like, what it means for the kingdom of God to, to be coming, for there to be an overlap, if you're wrestling with certain things. I mean, so just think about creation. Like, if you don't understand that the, that the first chapter is creation, you're going to have all kinds of issues with God having authority. If you think like we just kind of showed up here, it was kind of random how I was born. I mean, there's no real kind of creator. There's, we're just kind of here by chance. I mean, you're gonna have a hard time with really any authority, but especially God saying, I made you and I have designed life to work a certain way. I created the fabric of the universe. If you don't see creation as chapter one, you're gonna have issues with authority. And not just that, you're gonna have issues seeing the person you don't like as having dignity because they're made in the image of God, right? You mean you, your, your spouse, sure, except for sometimes, right? Your kids, you usually, I, I treat them with dignity. But what about, you know, your neighbor that loud, plays loud music at night? Sorry, I guess that shows my age. Some of y'all be like, I'm coming over. The rest of us are like calling the cops. Maybe, maybe, maybe the person that voted different than you, maybe the person at work that consistently belittles you. If you don't understand chapter one, it's gonna be hard to actually treat others, all people, as though they're made in the image of God and have dignity. But not just that, if you don't understand the fall of nature, if you don't understand chapter two, then you're gonna get really frustrated with broken people acting like broken people. You're gonna look at an old and dying world and, and think like, why are they acting old and dying? We're gonna be shocked and we shouldn't be. And not just that, we're gonna mistake who our real enemy is. Because we're gonna see people that are acting in their flesh and we're gonna be like, they're the enemy. When in reality, there's an enemy behind the enemy. See, we have to understand the fall to fully understand what we see, that the brokenness in our world, we're like, why do hurricanes happen? Why is there tornadoes? Why is there cancer? Why is there death? And everything in us and our gut is like, that's wrong. It shouldn't be that way. Well, that's what the fall does. It helps us to understand what we see. But not just that, we have to understand chapter three, right? Because if we understand like there's a creation and there's a fall and we need to be redeemed, but we don't understand how redemption works, we don't understand that we're redeemed by the gospel, then we're gonna build our lives. We're gonna realize like I am estranged from God because of he made me and I've rebelled. And so if redemption to you is anything other than the gospel, what happens is an exhausting life of trying to build a foundation on your own works. You gotta understand that redemption is only made possible by Christ who came and was in our place. We have to understand the grip and the power of the gospel. But then lastly, we have to understand it hasn't yet reached consummation. That there's gonna be troubles. There's gonna be sorrow. You might get sick. You might lose someone you love. And if you're expecting consummation already, you're gonna shake your fist at God. But if you understand that, that we're in an overlap and, and that there will be a day where all sad things come in true, it, it, it matters. Don't you understand? See, it matters that we understand our place in the story. It makes sense of so much. 
But understanding our place, while it's vital, we also need to see that we're not alone. In Jesus' parting words in Matthew 28 and in Acts 1, he makes two promises of how we can actually carry out the mission of the knowledge of the glory of God filling the earth like waters cover the sea. He says in Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, I know you guys probably use behold a lot, like, you know, behold, I'd like a golden thunder at Shadrach's. But if you don't, because I don't, um, not every translation has behold in there. I just take a second just to tell you what it is. It's, a, it's a, in the original language, it's basically a word that's like, lean into this, lean into this. We may not use behold a lot. If you've got a King James Bible, it probably says low, like L-O. But that's what it's, lean into this. He's saying, behold, I am with you always. Lean into this. I'm with you always. We have presence of God. But you, you have to ask yourself, well, how? Because in Acts, he ascends to heaven. Well, Acts actually answers that since you asked such a great question. In fact, Jesus says it in verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit empowers us as the very presence of Christ, the power and the presence to the end of the age. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be witnesses. The Holy Spirit empowers us to actually go and make disciples. Have you ever had a conversation with someone before and you just about following Jesus and like something comes out of your mouth that you don't remember even reading and you're like, what was that? It's the Holy Spirit. He empowers us to be witnesses. He empowers us to call people to follow Jesus. And the way we are to be about his business in this chapter of the story where God has sovereignly placed you and I in Jonesboro, Arkansas, is to be empowered by the presence of Jesus through the spirit of Jesus to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world, in our time, in history. It's the Holy Spirit. And I say that word, Holy Spirit, or if you're old school and you're like Holy Ghost, whatever. But when I say Holy Spirit, I think a lot of us get uncomfortable. We like the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Bible. We're really confused about the Holy Spirit. But yet here's how Jesus speaks about God the Spirit. And I say God the Spirit, the person, he's not a force, the person the Holy Spirit, Jesus says this, that he's the giver of life. That the Spirit is the one that actually makes us alive, opens our eyes. He's a guide who will give us words to speak in persecution. That's Luke 12. The Holy Spirit brings peace and suffering. The Holy Spirit guides us into truth. It can, he convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And he will continually glorify Jesus to us and remind us of all that he said. And that would make sense considering what's supposed to fill the earth, 
the glory of God. The knowledge of the glory of God. And then you get further into the New Testament and Paul speaks about the Holy Spirit like this. He's the person who equips us with spiritual gifts for the edification of the body of Christ. And I just, I just gotta say, I think this is, this is something that a lot of us miss. Because a lot of Christians, I think, think that the ones that have, the reason they're called spiritual gifts is because they're from the Holy Spirit. And a lot of us think like the ones with spiritual gifts are the ones that stand on the stage. And that's just not true. When you profess faith in Christ, the Spirit gives you a gift, a gift to then pour out in the local church, to be encouraged, to equip each other for the work of ministry, to, to spur one another on to good works. The Holy Spirit is the one who does that. In his sovereign wisdom, the Spirit chooses what gift to give you. And sometimes, yeah, it parlays with some sort of like, you know, gifting that you may already have just naturally. But a lot of times it may not. But the Spirit gives you a gift. So therefore, be a part. I know you are. I know this is probably preaching the choir. If you're watching online, be a part of a local church. He's given you a gift to stir up the church to good works. Not only that, Paul says he cries out, Romans 8, he cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father, and Galatians. The spirit of the Lord brings freedom. Anybody here want freedom? 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He works the fruit of the spirit in us of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I think I added one in there, but it's probably still true. And he helps us and strengthens us in our weakness. Brothers and sisters, we shouldn't be afraid of the Holy Spirit. We should be afraid of trying to do life without him. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Thanks be to God, we don't have to fear doing life without him, even though a lot of us try to anyway because every single one of you, the scriptures say that when you profess faith in Christ, you not just receive a gift, you receive and are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. The very power and presence of God in your life. We are empowered in this chapter of the story to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. So the knowledge of God would fill the earth like waters cover the sea. It's the same story that's been going from the beginning. But missing the power and the presence and the person. It can have, it can, it can make you a, a malformed disciple. Like, are you trying, are you missing the power? Are you trying to pursue Jesus without considering the power that he's made available to you? Just because you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, if you ignore him, if you quench him by continually shunning him? Are you, are you trying to beat that temptation in your life without even asking the spirit for help? Are you trying to navigate your day without asking the spirit to guide you? 
Are you having trouble seeing Jesus for who he is and you're not asking the spirit to make him clear and to glorify Christ in your mind and in your heart? Are you trying to do the Christian life without power? And not just that, like Paul says, we fight against not flesh and blood, but the powers and the principalities. Like I did deadlift yesterday. I can barely walk. My low back's hurt. And I'm not gonna be fighting no powers and principalities without the power of God. Are you missing the power? Are you treating the Holy Spirit as though he doesn't exist? Because I believe we're approaching a time in our culture where following Jesus, Jesus is just going to get increasingly more difficult. And I don't just mean persecution. I just mean we, we got so much to distract us. We got so much that lures us in, our attention You know, the enemy is not showing up to you most likely like beating you down. He's, he's, he's like Adam and Eve feeding you lies in your mind and your heart, reeling you in and you're biting hook, line, and sinker. And I can do it too. Man, we need the spirit of power in this place, in the story. And we need to relate to him like a person. He's not the force in Star Wars. He's a person that you talk to, that guides you, that encourages you, that convicts you, that emboldens you. Look at the, look at the disciples. They were scared to death of servant girls and Christ was, on the, was in trial. 40 days later, they're telling all the religious leaders, yeah, you killed Messiah, good job but you can repent. I mean, where's that boldness come from? Power of the Spirit. Are you missing the mission? Because I think for a lot of us, the reality is today, like for some of us, this is new understanding. For some of us, like this idea of where we are in the story and the fact that God's presence and power is with us through the Spirit is like, it's fortifying this foundation in our life. And maybe you're knocking out some walls that you built up in your house, so to speak, as a metaphor of life. And, and maybe you're doing some demo right now, like in your heart, or maybe over the last two weeks with the gospel and the same God, you're doing some demo. You're like, man, I built this wall. It shouldn't be there. I need to be, th this is the foundation that needs to be laid. It's, my foundation was too small. It was too shifting. So maybe for a lot of you, like these three weeks have been, wow, okay, this is new information. I need to digest this. I need to pray about this. And that's great. But I think for a lot of us here today, it's not that you didn't know the Holy Spirit indwells you or is supposed to empower you. And it's not that, you didn't know you're supposed to be Christ's witness for the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The hangup isn't that you've built up maybe some walls or you've got this different foundation. You're not seeing the bigger picture. That's not the issue. No, the hangup for many of us is that we just don't have the drive to do it. We see living lives for the glory of God, sharing the gospel and making disciples by the power of the spirit as a lesser story than the story we want to tell with our lives. And if that's you, because that's been me, that leads to guilt. It leads to, to that closet in your house and you, you shove shame in there and you close it because you just don't want to deal with it. 
You don't want to own it. But inside you're like, God, I know you're calling me something bigger, but I just want to do what I want to do. I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk to them. I just want to go home and prop my feet up and turn on Netflix. I don't want to do that. I want my goals to be paramount. I want my story to be paramount. And if that's you today, you don't just simply need to try harder. You don't just need to try harder. I'm not saying there's no effort, but what I'm saying is that's not the answer to get over the hump. We need to be awakened by the beauty of the gospel, by the beauty and glory of God and by our place in the story so that what has become a duty, a begrudging duty oftenly of being about the gospel and the glory of God on the earth can become a delight. The how? Well, because if you're in that camp today and you've got that closet full of shame and guilt and you, you hear that voice of condemnation in your head all the time, miss that opportunity. I mean, why has God even called you to anything? You're worthless. You hear that in your head? You hear that condemnation? Let me tell you something, brother or sister. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see that, that where we find freedom is in the unity with Christ. We are in Christ Jesus and there's no condemnation for you. That those voices you hear of condemnation, that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit may convict you, but he doesn't heap shame on you because Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, so that we could become children of God. There's no condemnation and no one else because you have been set free. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We've been set free. There's no condemnation for us. See, the enemy knows he can't take your salvation. So what he does is he makes you feel so much guilt and shame that even if you did something for Christ, it's not out of just the beauty or magnificence of who he is, but it's to try to check a box. It's to try to make yourself feel better. But where the freedom is found is to, is to actually be rewired to say, when you say what you want to me, there's no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. I've been set free. And when you do that, when you have that conversation, you may think like, am I supposed to talk to myself? Yes, read the Psalms. Soul, why are you down? I mean, that might be a little weird in 2023. But the Bible's full. Talk to yourself. What? No, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I've been set free. The gospel we received, the gospel on which we stand, the gospel on which we are being saved. When you see God the Father sending his own son in the likeness of us in our place and he condemns sin in the flesh of Christ, and then see that we can be redeemed and given his spirit to walk with the spirit. We can now relish in the beauty of God, the encompassing grace and glory of the gospel. And we can be rejuvenated for the heart of mission. 
Verse three says this, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of human flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Don't you see, like if, if you're in the room today and you know the story, but you're struggling to get fired up for the story. It's a duty. The only way to see it as a delight is not to try harder, but is to gaze at the beauty of the God of the story. And then begin to see, man, he's, his story is a better story. In his book, this is as we close, I just wanna share this quote from Michael Reeves. He wrote a book called Overflow, How the Joy of the Trinity Inspires Our Mission. Here's what he says in the introduction. Knowing God as Trinity started me speaking with relish of God. It's not the hot dog, uh, what do you call it? Relish is like delight, satisfaction. Knowing God as Trinity started me speaking with relish of God. The Trinity pushed me beyond a tick the box of duty evangelism into a fuller life of intentional mission with glee. I want you to know a God who is not mean and pinched, but overflowing with life, goodness, and beauty. For when you are full of him, you too will overflow and be a spring of life-giving water to all around you. Anybody want that? Relish in the better story because you're relishing in the God of the story who will one day come and make all things new. And in the meantime, he's given us his spirit to empower us, to equip us, to guide us, to convict us, to assure us that we are sons and daughters of God. This is the finishing touch of a firm foundation. It's the layout through which we need to look at our life and it's the layout through which fruit will spring forth in our life. But the fruit, the holiness in our life, that's next time. This time, Relish in the beauty of God. Be captivated by his spirit and roll up your sleeves to be about his glory in the earth as the waters cover the sea by the power of his spirit. As we close, um, it's really, I don't know, I feel like I say this every week, it's pretty simple might be like, you just talk for 45 minutes if it was that simple. But I mean, really, in the end, if you're here today and you would say like, you don't follow Jesus, maybe you've been curious about Jesus. But at this point, you would just say like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Or maybe I thought I did, but after hearing the story and the gospel last week, and I, I think maybe I, maybe I just assumed that my parents' faith was enough for me or or my spouse's faith was, was, I was just kind of piggybacking and that's just not the way Christianity works. You don't catch it by osmosis. 
So for maybe for you today, you see this bigger story and you're like, man, I've been living for my own story my whole life and it's just led me to a dead end after dead end. I wanna invite you to a better story. But the way that you would engage with God is by faith to say, I know that at the right time, Jesus came. You sent Jesus born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who would have faith. Today, you need to find yourself in chapter three of God's story and the story of redemption and then about his spirit-empowered work until he returns. And if you're here today as a follower of Christ, I would just encourage you, don't be afraid of the Holy Spirit. He's gonna make much of Jesus. He's gonna guide you. He's gonna give you the words to say. He's gonna encourage you. He's gonna give you peace. He's gonna gift you with ways to encourage the local church. He's gonna convict you, but guess what? Conviction itself isn't bad. It's how you course correct. And it's out of love to say like, that's, gonna, that's a dead end. That's a dead end. There's a cliff on the end of that road, brother, sister, get back. Don't quench the spirit, but the last thing I wanna encourage you with is be prayerful because we do have a directive and we do have a better story to live for. So be prayerful, ask the Holy Spirit, God, to speak to you and to guide you this week. Lord, would you give me somebody to share the gospel with? He'll answer it and he'll give you the words. Let's pray. <clears throat> our Father, we, we're so grateful to be in our chapter, to be in our place. Lord, I'm grateful to not have to do life without the Holy Spirit. Forgive us when we try to do things on our own power. Thank you for your grace that you would fill us yet again with your spirit, equipping us for the very things you call us to do. You equip those you call. And so we are grateful that you would do that and we pray that you would guide us this week to be about your glory in Jonesboro as waters cover the sea so that your story moves forward so that you are glorified, so that you are lifted up, so that you get the praise and we just get all that joy underneath. Would you do that? And Lord, would you, would you save someone today? Would you change their heart to follow you? You can do it, you will do it and it's for your magnificent and beautiful name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.